When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. I'd like to begin by asking, having you think about who it is in your life that's influenced you. Think for just a moment. Different people in your life who have made a difference in your life for Christ. Could be some of you here would immediately think of your parents, perhaps an older sibling. Maybe it's a good friend, someone who, whose life resonates Christ, points you toward Christ. Maybe for some of us growing up, it was a teacher. I can remember a few teachers along the way who helped inspire encourage, motivate. I'm reminded of Dr. Nigren when I was in college. I always enjoyed 
hearing what he had to say. Older gentleman taught Old Testament. And I remember always sitting in the front row, not because I wanted to look good to everybody else in the class, but I enjoyed sitting in the front row because I enjoyed hearing what Dr. Nygren had to say because he had a joy and a love for the scriptures. I'm reminded of some of the coaches that I played for, some of the teammates that I played with who influenced me. Things of the Lord. I'm reminded even of past church history. Times growing up, I remember being in Sunday school class. And I remember certain men teaching the word. Tim and Bob and Stan, their names, men who are meaningful in my own life, men who taught the word, men who were willing to take on a young person like myself who, who after class was done would come up and ask a lot of questions. I appreciated their, their willingness to invest in me in the things of the Lord. I'm also reminded of the influence in my life of those who are co-laboring in ministry. People that perhaps I've never even met, but I feel as though they're friends. Maybe you have some of those same people as well. Maybe you've read some of their books. Maybe you've heard them speak. People that have influenced you to live your life in a certain way for Jesus Christ. Many of you know a couple of those kinds of influences in my life. I've shared them. An older man named Jerry Bridges, right? He's in his mid-80s, I think, by now. I love a lot of what he has to say because it's so grounded and rooted right here in the Scripture. A Scottish pastor long ago, Robert Murray McShane. He lived to be 29 years of age. He's been an influence in my life. I've not met the man, but the things that I've read about his life have influenced me, have helped me grow. What about you? Who's influenced you? For the Lord Jesus Christ. If we took time... There would be some wonderful stories, no doubt, we could share. And perhaps even over lunch, I'll throw this as a plug, perhaps over lunch this would be a, a discussion topic of the very people who have influenced you for Jesus. Some of these people are still around and alive today, and, and other of these people have gone on. But they've set an example for the kind of life called for in Christ. Their, their lives resonate, reflect Christ. You're, you enjoy being around these people. They leave a mark on your life for good, for the cause of Christ. 
they leave a mark that points you toward the Father in heaven. There's a caution to put forth here. Influential people, according to the Bible, are those who spend their lives for Christ, helping others, as we'll see here in just a moment, through their good works, fix their eyes upon Jesus. Influential people, according to the Bible, are never consumed with raising themselves up. But instead, make it a regular exercise to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. To make much of Jesus. So as you consider the list of people in your own life who've been in, who have influenced you positively. Remember, influence can also be negative, can't it? Positive, negative. Lord willing, we have a positive influence on those around us. Have you ever stopped to consider that there might be others, maybe perhaps others even here in this room? Might be somebody in the road down from you, a couple chairs up. There might be others who put your name down when thinking of an influential person in their lives. It's humbling to, to think of yourself as an influencer in the lives of others. That, that God could use you to influence someone else. Parents, you are influencing your children in some manner, shape, or form. There is no neutral ground here. Children are being influenced in the training and admonition of the Lord, or they are being influenced in the accepted ways of the world. Children are being influenced by order and discipline in the home, or they are being influenced by disorder and lack of discipline in the home. Children are being influenced by a father and a mother and siblings who read the word, love the word, and desire to share the word, or they are being influenced by a father and a mother and other siblings who hardly read the word, who neglect the word, and as a result have little desire to share this word with those in the home. In church, it's important that we understand you influence other parts of the body. Let's be clear on that. Not simply as a bunch of individuals, but as a collective body. Young men, you influence other young men when you come in alert, eager to worship.
on the flip side of that, young men. You influence other young men when you look like you just rolled out of bed. When your head perhaps keeps dropping off and nodding and doing, doing laps. It's funny, sort of. Sort of not. When you look disinterested in being in the Lord's house, what do you mean? Body language says a lot, doesn't it? We've talked about this even in our own home. Body language. Says a lot. Young men, there are other young men looking at you, watching you. When you stand during worship and song time but fail to sing, you stand like everybody else, but Nothing comes out of your mouth. Has someone given you a token that's exempted you from singing? Worshiping the Lord. Young man, people are watching. And we don't do these these things primarily because people are watching. We do these things primarily out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we do these things. And we have opportunity in the midst of that to influence others around us toward the Lord. Not that they look at us and go, oh, we're going to talk about that. That's not what this is about. Influence of of when the word is, is being read that we either either have the, we hear what's being said, but we're not flipping through, following along in our Bibles. As though it's really, this is really not, it's not as important, not all that big of a deal to have the word open. Young men, it is. Young ladies, it is. And young ladies, your influence holds in a very similar fashion. There are younger ladies watching you. watching what you say, watching your temperament, watching how you interact with others. And yes, rightly or wrongly, also watching and observing your attire and the concern for modesty. They're watching your love and your concern for Jesus Christ. You see, the text today speaks about the kind of influence called for by the king. He set forth in verses 3 through 12, eight attitudes, or we've learned, we've talked about them as the beatitudes. These character traits, these expressions of 
who we are to be as a child of the king. The king's approval, the king's blessing comes along with each one of these as we've read in verses 3 through 12. And there's some kind of reward, there's some kind of result attached to each one of these. But we need to understand that with the blessings come responsibilities. Responsibilities. All that, that's a word some of us, especially young people, don't like to hear that word. Responsibilities. Got responsibilities to take care of. Well, as a child of the king, we have responsibilities as well to take care of. And that's where verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 come into play in the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So you have Matthew 5, 13, which speaks of the responsibility to be salt. And then you have 14, 15, and 16 speaking of the responsibility to be light. The church is not only to exhibit the attitudes and character put forth in verses 3 through 12. But she's also to remember her priorities in this life. As a part of the church, you have been called to live responsibly. And we've got these billboards, right? And ads are all over the place. You can't miss it. You can't miss hearing it. Sadly. And these billboards are, are, are designed, I haven't totally figured it out, other than I understand, you know, marketing, advertising, the draw your attention to something, right? But we see these signs and hear these words that we are to drink responsibly. And, and, I, and I oftentimes... Scratch my head at that, because I don't know exactly what that means. But the king, here in Matthew chapter 5, says to live responsibly. You have been given life. Steward your body as unto the Lord. Live responsibly. What do you mean? Well, Jesus says, be the salt We're called to be the salt that Jesus says that we are. If you examine yourself and find that you are in faith, are you in Christ? This is key. Be the light that Jesus says you are. If you examine yourself and find you're in the faith, be the light that Jesus says you are. We've got two facts in the scripture. I love facts. Do you like facts? Facts, something that's true. And what I do all out, outside of here on the court, there are certain things that happen in the game of basketball. They're facts. They're true. If something happens, if, it, if, it, if you see it happen, if, if two hands, boom, go on the dribbler, that's fact. I, I see it. It's a foul. I love that. It makes it easy. Facts are easy. Two plus two. Right? Someone might debate that. Someone might want to argue that. But two plus two is four. Some of you who are into math, you like facts. You like being able to solve it. And you know that that is the answer to the question. Not one of many answers. That is the answer. 
Well, Jesus gives us two facts. I love these facts. The first one, you are the salt of the earth. Second one, you are the light of the world. That's who you are. If you're being Jesus Christ. If you are a child of the king. So, how do you receive that statement of truth from Jesus? Maybe you're processing that. I want you to hold on to it for just a moment. Go ahead and let it simmer. But I would like to share with you a little bit of background and and maybe give you some insight as to how the listener on the mountain would have received this. It's important to consider that, by the way, just in terms of reading the text. Sometimes we're real quick, aren't we, to jump and ask the question, what's this mean for me? We'll get there. And you can get there in your own reading time, but also ask the question, well, how did this land on the ear of those who might have been around listening to Jesus? Let's understand that, that salt, salt was used, as we see in the Bible, it was used in, in sacrifices. It was used in covenant arrangements, agreements. In fact, if we go back to um, the book of Leviticus in chapter 2, I'm going to read you a few scriptures and you can jot these down if you'd like to. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it says, In every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. And you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt was pretty important. There must have been a, a large quantity of salt. Because from what I see in the Old Testament, a lot, of, a lot of sacrifices being made. If we flip over to Numbers, we see in Numbers chapter 18... Verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy... Th- talking about sacrifices and offerings again. Which the children of Israel offered to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. A covenant We see in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 43. Ezekiel 43, verse 24, God speaking to Ezekiel. Starting 23, when you finish cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish. Again, referencing sacrifices here. And a ram from the flock without blemish. Verse 24, when you offer them before the Lord, the priests shall throw salt on them. That was one of their responsibilities. Throw salt on them. And they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. You know, and then you flip to the New Testament and you you flip to Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, you see these words in 49, 50. For everyone will be seasoned with fire. He's just been talking about fire previous to this. And he says every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That's kind of interesting because the Old Testament kind of helps us gain an understanding there, a little bit of where salt has come. This was a part of 
the sacrifices that were being made. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, as we'll talk about in just a moment, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another, Jesus says. So salt was used in the various sacrifices. Salt was used in covenant making. Salt was also used in the day in the context of friendship. Or if there was a treaty, if you exchanged salt, exchanging of salt was you were obligated at that point to do good to that other person, right? It signified that you were going to keep your word with that other person if you exchanged salt. It's also seen, you see this in the Roman world of the day, it was a means of payment. They would get paid with salt. You know, so here's, here's where it's good to have some understanding of the context. Because today, I wouldn't think of paying somebody with salt. That wouldn't even cross my radar. I don't think it would cross yours either. What we would like to get paid with is cash, money, not salt. But back in the day, that's what they exchanged. They would get paid in salt. In fact, that, that word salarium... Um, I believe the Latin word is where we get our word for what we call today salary, salt. You heard the expression, you're not worth your salt. (laughs) You're not worth your wage. You're not worth being paid anything. One writer said it in, in numerous ways, Jesus' hearers, whether Greek, Roman, or Jewish, would have understood Salt of the earth to represent a valuable commodity. His followers were to have an extremely important function in the world. Whatever else it may have represented, salt always stood for that which was of high value and importance. We see that even in the day, salt was used as a preservative. Still is today. I was informed by my eight-year-old daughter, that that salt was used on the venison in Laura Ingalls Wilder to preserve the meat. One writer said that in the ancient world, salt was used primarily, primarily as a preservative since they did not own deep freeze refrigerators. The people used salt to preserve many food items. And so implicitly here, looking at the text, he goes on and says, he's saying that apart, his, his disciples, his disciples, this is important, as they think about preservation, the preserving aspect of salt. Apart from his disciples, the salt of the earth, the world turns even more rotten. Christians have the effect of delaying moral and spiritual purification. (laughs) Delaying it. It's bad. Think about how bad it would be if there were not any Christians. We oftentimes think of salt as seasoning or, or flavoring. 
And it is that. I tend to sprinkle a little bit, perhaps maybe too much on an occasion. Our context for salt is typically centered around something we pour on food. It gives it a little bit more flavor. When Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth, though, is is he saying primarily that you are going to add flavor to the world? Is he saying that your role is simply to put flavor into a world that's just bland, dry, and without much season? We need to understand that by nature the world doesn't want the seasoning of Christ. It stands opposed to such a message. The world's not waiting with welcome arms the seasoning of Christianity. In the first century, a Christian, his witness very well could cost him his life. The world didn't take a liking to the Christian flavor. And many died for being salt in the earth. Some of us think of, of salt as pure, right? The grains of, of white salt. We consider the purity aspect when we read, you are the salt of the earth. And there is an element of that that is true as well. As we saw back in Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. The disciple of Jesus is, is to be pure. We are called to live holy lives. Pure lives. Without that holy living, no one, according to Hebrews 12, 14, will see the Lord. You ever heard the expression, don't pour salt on the wound? You know, you get someone who's, who's been hurt or they find themselves in a, at a disadvantage and you do something to make the matter seemingly worse. Don't pour salt in the wound. If you think about that idea, pouring salt on a wound, salt does have a cleansing effect, but in that process, it it also stings, doesn't it? I was reminded in the Bible of David. And how, when confronted by the prophet Nathan, had that stinging effect in his life. Sin. You see, being the salt of the earth may have a stinging effect upon those you come in contact with. Why? I thought I was supposed to bring good news into the lives of us. I thought I was to trumpet the message of Jesus Christ. And yes, that is true. As you live responsibly and carry out being the salt of the earth, you will irritate the world when you bring up sin. The good news of the gospel, church, includes the bad news of sin. We talked about that as we were going through Romans. The good news of the gospel begins with, in Romans chapter 1, the bad news of man's state. That spiral of depravity at the end of chapter 1, right? All have fallen short 
Romans 3 says. You see, until the bad news of sin is dealt with, the good news of Jesus as Savior means very little, if anything. You know, I think about all the, the pebbles of, of, of salt that get poured out in the winter. Snow and ice comes. And perhaps we'll have some this year for those of you who plow. We, we didn't get to do that all that much last year. But you have a bag of ice, a bag of, of, of salt that you can put out on the ice and, and the snow out in your driveway and, and your front porch. What does the salt do to the ice and the snow? It melts that ice. Penetrates. So you can like pour it, walk away and come back a little bit later and you start to see. Lord willing, it melts the ice. And after a few hours, that, that ice is gone. The properties contained within that salt are eating away, breaking down that ice. You see, the disciple of Jesus who lives responsibly can also affect, church, can also affect a cold and icy heart. God is ultimately the one who changes the heart, but his salt is scattered throughout the world. And that salt can affect change. You are the salt of the earth. But the text says, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? How shall it be seasoned? You know, I was thinking. I borrowed a few things here. I hope my wife won't mind too much. I raided some of the pantry this morning. And I have here some pure salt. And so when I take some of this, oh, now see, this isn't going to work until I get the, uh, some little minute thing was flying in there. There we go. All right, we'll just put a little bit in there for now. And we see this pure salt. Nothing mixed in. Pure salt. Jesus says you are the salt of the world. Here's what happens sometimes. What ends up happening, two things can happen actually. Like this wonderful black pepper. It doesn't take a whole lot. You start to see how that gets mixed in, white and black, when they're together, the black shows up a little bit. Now, if I was to taste this now, I probably would still taste some of the salt. But it's just not going to taste the same, is it? It's not. In fact, sometimes, sometimes the difference isn't so so obvious. I mean, if I, if I was to start over here 
and I have salt. And I get a little bit of salt. And I have some birthday sprinkles. All of the children are going, oh. And I put a little of that in there. Now, to many of you, just looking at it, it still looks white. Still looks good. Nothing wrong with this. But there's the rub. You see, there are a lot of times in our life when we're mixing in things. See, it was easy when I poured the pepper in, wasn't it? To see what, what doesn't fit. That's the obvious, it doesn't fit. It's a little more difficult to discern with the eye when something looks like salt, but it's not salt. And if you were to taste it, it would still taste differently. It wouldn't taste like pure salt because you've mixed it with something else. Keep that visual in mind. Hopefully that's helpful visual. Not a distracting visual. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be seasoned? Jesus is presenting right here. It's important. He's presenting a danger. The danger of salt losing its flavor. Okay? Can we be clear for just a moment on what Jesus is not saying. This needs to be spoken. Jesus is not equating the loss of flavoring with the loss of one's salvation. Can we be clear on this? John chapter 10, one of several verses. It's one that I'll share. 27 and 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, for salt to lose its seasoning. Think about that for just a moment. Salt, by nature, is salty. That's what it is. It has flavor and seasoning in and of itself. In what manner then could salt lose its seasoning? Well, contextually in Jesus' day, if you had salt in your house that was contaminated, if it was mixed in with other minerals or, or other stuff, kind of like what I was showing you right here, if there were other things that were mixed in, they typically would just get rid of it because they didn't want it to infect the rest of the salt they had in their house. So they'd just throw it out. It would literally be what the very thing Jesus is describing in verse 13. It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. See, this kind of salt served no purpose for the owner. They would get rid of it so it didn't contaminate the rest of the salt in the house. Salt can no longer, church, stop being salt. It's salt. But salt can lose its intended effect when other things are mixed in. Little sugar sprinkles. 
or pepper, for example. So how does this apply to your life? I hope you see some application here. As the salt of the earth, has your life lost its saltiness due to something else coming in? Is, is the word of God being choked out due to the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches? Is your witness for Christ not what it should be because of unrepentant sin? There are all kinds of things that perhaps are crowding in, mixing in, if you will, with the salt that Jesus says you are. You are. That's fact, remember? Fact. You are the salt of the earth. One writer said, if the purpose of salt is to fight deterioration, it therefore must not itself deteriorate. How are you tending to your soul? You know, going back to Deuteronomy 6, a familiar passage to many of us here. You remember the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These are to be in your heart, these words. And then you shall teach them diligently to your children. You cannot effectively train and discipline and pass along to your children a love for Christ when you yourself are absent of such love. You cannot be effective salt for Christ when you are so entangled with the affairs of the world. You cannot be effective salt for Christ when you desire to mix the things of the world in as well. If you are intended to be a preservative, to fight deterioration in this world that's perishing, this world that's wasting away, you must... Desire, purity of heart, holiness. When Jesus states that you are the salt of the earth, we need to remember something. Grammatically, this is what's called as a, uh, an emphatic use of the pronoun. Hang with me. All it means is this. The beginning of the Greek sentence is you. You may say, no big deal. That's what well, begins in English. You're right. But also in the Greek, many times the sentences begin with the thing that is kind of, they want to emphasize this very idea, so they put it at the beginning of the sentence. So you have you, and then the next word is you are. You, you are. Well, we don't talk like that in English. We just say you are. But in the Greek, there's an emphasis here upon you. That's plural. You all. In other words, if we were to Render that, as the original has it, could read something like, you yourselves are the salt of the earth, or you are the only salt of the earth. You, there's no one else, you are. You see, God has commissioned his people to be the salt of the earth. He's given to you his Holy Spirit. He's given to you his word to live in this manner. What he's called you to be, church, he's given you the tools and the resources to live out responsibly here on earth. You are the salt of the earth. So church, we need to live responsibly and be the salt 
See, here he's not calling us necessarily, primarily, to, to be doing. He's wanting us to understand who we are, our identity. This is who we are in Christ. Look at Matthew 5, 14. You are the light. Fact number one, you are the salt. Fact number two, you are the light of the world. Light of the world. Light is visible. And I don't think we've got the opportunity. Maybe we did if I had arranged it ahead of time with the person in the back and they could have flipped all the lights off. We did this last night in our home. Maybe this would be a great exercise for you to do in your home. But to uh, just to turn everything off. And then, you know, last night I had, we had all the lights off and I just had the, the children to look around the room see if there was any light, and if so, where. And it was coming. There were a couple little tiny lights on in, in the kitchen and, and some lights reflecting from outside in. And the ones inside were very small lights. This, this isn't a very big light. But if this room were dark right now, you all would definitely see this light. It's visible. It attracts. What else does light do? It exposes. Exposes what? According to John chapter 3, it exposes deeds of darkness, doesn't it? And, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why people desire not to come into the truth, into the light. Because the light exposes our deeds. You are the light of the world. The writer says, as both salt and light, are unlike that which they are to influence. God, this is important to remember, God has changed us from being part of the corrupted and corrupting world to being salt that can help preserve it. He has changed us from our own darkness to be his agents. Remember Colossians 1.13, right? God, we praise God because he's brought us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. By definition, an influence must be different from that which it influences. And Christians, therefore, must be different from the world they are called to influence. We cannot influence the world for God when we are worldly ourselves. We cannot live and give, we can't give light to the world if we revert to places and ways of darkness ourselves. As I woke up this morning, I remember sitting in my bedroom. I was looking out the window. I saw glimpses of light from a new day about to dawn early this morning. And I see that all of you made it here. I don't know if any of you arrived one hour early. Hope not. If you did, praise the Lord, you had an extra hour of prayer time. But early this morning, around 5.30, I, I couldn't see a whole lot. Couldn't see a whole lot. By 9 a.m., the light of day was brightly shining. I could see very clearly outside. You see, part of living responsibly in Christ is to be the light of the world. Jesus himself makes this self-declaration in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. 
he who follows me, shall not walk in darkness. Do we hear that? He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you see in Genesis 1, verse 3. Genesis 1, verse 3. First words recorded by God. Then God said, here's what he said. Let there be what? Light. And so what happened after he said that? There was light. I love that. Well, he really didn't need to say that. I mean, if God says something, it's going to happen, but it puts it in there to let us know. And there was light. Why the need for light? Genesis 1 verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void. Here it is. And darkness was on the face of the deep. Darkness. God says, let there be light. If we look at John's gospel, chapter 1. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. Think about that. That's one of the reasons we carry around one of these tools, right? We go down into the crawl space of our house. And oftentimes, unless you have a light switch down there, you need some kind of light source so you can see. You're going caving. It's important oftentimes you've got a flashlight. Some of you wear those funny-looking things around your head, and they got lights on the front of them. Why? So you can see where you're going. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Remember that man, John? This man came for a witness to bear witness. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light. That all through him might believe. He was not that light. Speaking of John, John wasn't that light. Wasn't that light. But was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light. Which gives light to every man coming into the world. Every man. What about the words of the psalmist? Psalm 36, verse 9. The psalmist says, For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. In your light we see light. Reminds me of 1 John. This is like a puzzle. These scriptures just all build on each other. You just go from one to the other, speaking about light. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that truth, fact right here, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Notice the connection between our walking in his light. The connection here is that when we have fellowship with him, when we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But it gets... It goes further. Chapter 2, 
Verse 9, he who says he is in the light, you say you're in the light. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother. You're sitting here today, you say you're in the light and you hate your brother. You hate your sister. You got something against them. Listen to this word. It says he's in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. Abides in the light. Remains in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. And does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Proverbs are filled with examples of light and darkness. But I'm also drawn to 2 Corinthians as I'm thinking here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. Paul says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves for your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Listen to verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light To shine out of darkness, Genesis chapter 1, that God. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on and on. Scriptures related, the scriptures are filled with just light. Talk about light. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. Notice then he follows that up by saying, giving us two sources, if you will, of light. At the end of verse 14, he says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about it. And I don't know, I, I kind of, as I was studying the text, I kind of was, was likening this to Jesus. Maybe he was thinking about Jerusalem, because you think of Jerusalem oftentimes as a city set on a hill. I don't know if he was or not, but that was where I was going as I was thinking about the text. A city set on a hill. Whether it's in the daytime, if it's in the daytime, you're able to see it clearly. If it's at night, oftentimes that city is going to be illuminated and it's going to be reflected. You see it in the sky. If you can't actually see the buildings, you see the lights from the hill. It cannot be hidden. Verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let me ask. Anyone ever lit a candle in your home? And immediately afterward, you found one of those big bushel baskets and placed it over your candle. Anybody ever done that? Intentionally. Okay, good. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? To light a candle. To turn on a light switch. A lamp. And then to immediately cover it up. Light is intended to what? Shine. Here we go. Get your pointers ready. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 
There's not a one of us in here too old to sing this, by the way. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Right? Remember that song? Remember one of the other verses? Hide it under a bushel. No! I always had fun with that part. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Then there was another one that went like this. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. The last stanza. Remember the last one? There may have been more. Those are the ones I know. Remember? Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it shine. The, the longevity. The, the, the length. How long do we endure being a light? As long as he gives us breath. Until he comes back. Or until I'm done. That's how long he's called you to be light. You are the light of the world. These two images, the city set on a hill, the lamp in the house, are helpful not only as they complement the fact at the beginning of verse 14, but they also go hand in hand with the imperative. Imperative is fancy language for a command in verse 16. Let your light... Jesus says, so shine. In in the same manner as the city on a hill cannot be hidden, in the same manner that when you light a lamp and you put it on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house, in the same manner, let your light so shine before men. Let it shine before men. Not just with those in your immediate family in your house. Yes, it's important and we can practice shining it there. But before men, remember you are the light of what? The world. Not just the light in a house, in your household. You are the light of the world. This world that you are a light for is walking around in darkness, church. Needs light. Needs, in fact, Only the light that you can shine. See, the Lord's got you in a circumstance. He's got you in a place where your light can shine in that dark place. And it's the only place where you, he's called you to that, only place where you can be doing that very thing. He's got each one of you in different places. Praise the Lord. He's got light And the light is going out. Think about it. Here we are all gathered together and all the light right here. This is bright. This ought to be a a bright place. But then when we leave, I like the idea of this. When we do leave, I want you to think about this. You get in your vans and your cars and 
and you're going home. And the light is leaving here collectively. And the light is going out. And so when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go about your work and you go into your workplace, your light is going there. Your light is going over here. It's going over here. Going over here. It's going in all different places and directions. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. Why? For what purpose? That they may see your good works. That they may see your good works. Let's be clear. We do not shine light that man might see us. If what we're about is drawing attention to ourselves, we're missing what Jesus is saying here. Let your light so shine before men. It doesn't say so that they can come up to you and give you a big hug and pat you on the back and tell you how wonderful you are. No, that's not what the text says. The text says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. You know, there are some today who have a wrong understanding, and I say wrong not not to be throwing a dart. I say wrong because I know what this word says about good works. Some today have this understanding that if I can just compile enough and build up enough of these good works, I can be saved. I'm in. I'm good with the Lord. No. Because in context, you can read Ephesians chapter 2, right? And you can see that you're saved not by works. You're saved by grace through faith, right? And then the follow-up to that is wonderful because let's be clear on this. While those works, those good works don't save you, God still has a purpose and a place for his good works in your life. You are God's workmanship, which he created. He created you in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which he prepared long in advance for you to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. Here, here it is, right here. These good works. And I was, I was reading the text and I was asking the question, how do I carry out these good works in such a way that people are going to be pointed, going to be directed to the Father in heaven? How can I make sure that that happens? Well, while I 100% cannot make sure on my own that that happens, and here's why. Let me take a step back. Here's why. I can do the very thing that the text is calling me to do, and that is let my light shine so that men may see my good works. I can can do that part. But the Lord is the one who is going to open blind eyes, deaf ears, minds that the God of this age has blinded, My God does that work. I'm called to take care of what he's called me to do. He's called me to be salt and to be light. And as I am light, 
in this dark world, the Lord will, in his timing, in his sovereign purposes, orchestrating all things, he will bring about his intended purposes. It's wonderful to know that I don't have to have the control of trying to figure out how can I get this person to glorify the Father in heaven? I really want him to glorify the Father in heaven. What good work can I come up with? Let me see. Do I have one that I can look up in the book here? Is there a good work that I can get them to now glorify the Father in heaven? You know what? If we had the answer to that, I would hope that all of us as light would be doing it. But I don't see it working that way. I see this. I see obedience to be the kind of people, to be the salt and light Jesus has called us to be. And in the midst of obedience... The Lord in his own timing will bring about his results. Let's allow the Lord to take care of the things, the very thing that only God can do, and that's change heart. Oh, but I pray we would yearn, long to see the world glorify the Father. You know, I was thinking about the song. Some of you may know it. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. What I'm reading here today, this is a text that speaks to our witness in Christ Jesus. Salt and light. Influence. Church, and I would remind you as we close, I would remind you that if Christ has made any difference in your life, I pray he has. If he has influenced you, and if you have Christ, he's influenced you We've all been influenced in the same manner by having the good deposit of the Holy Spirit within us. Who is our influencer, our encourager, our comforter. He's in many things. He's our teacher. That we are to be about these truths. Living this way. So whatever it is that's, that's, that's hindering, that's blocking the way, keeping you from being salt... That pure salt, that salt that's not mixed with a bunch of other stuff that makes it unbearable, that makes it and keeps it from being the salt that Christ intended us to be. Whatever it is that you're doing that, that, that's keeping that light, you are the light of the world. If you are in Christ, whatever it is that's keeping that light from shining, could be fear of rejection, could be fear of man, could be all kinds of things. We need to understand that we are the ones given the responsibility. He didn't have a, there's no backup plan here. This is to be carried out through his disciples, through his children. To be the salt and to be the light. You know, one of my concerns in this text as I was going and studying and leading into this week was that that you would be too familiar with this passage. You know, sometimes we read a text and it's, and it's familiar. 
And sometimes when it's familiar, the tendency is to tune out. Yeah, salt and light. I know, I've heard that one. I hope we see that on the back end of verses 3 through 12, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus now is calling us to who we are. This is who we are. This is like a sign. This is, this is describing who we are. Here's who you are. You are the salt. You are the light. Marching orders from the king. Now go and be salt. Go and shine your light. That others may see your good works. And praise your father in heaven. That's the goal. That's the hope. What a joy. We get to do it together. We get to encourage one another as salt, as light. Encourage one another in this. Exhort one another in this, even as the day approaches. Let's give God glory, too, in all that happens, as we set about being salt, as we set about being light in this world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it's a joy. to know your truth. Father, you've given to us your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that these words of Jesus, these words of our King, here in Matthew chapter 5, they would speak life to us. They would breathe life and energy and hope and encouragement to us today. They would remind us of our identity in Christ. Who we are. Oh, Father, I pray we would live responsibly. We would desire to be the salt of the earth. That we would desire to be the light of the world. And Father, as lights shining in this crooked and depraved generation, Philippians says, may we hold forth the light. May we be light bearers. May we never back down from the truth of your word. May we never be ashamed to speak your word. May the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to penetrate the darkness of this world. Father, we see in your word that things keep getting worse and Deceivers come and deceivers are going to grow worse. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Father, in the midst of all, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the persecution and the suffering, I pray, Father, that we would stand firm as light, that we would stand as salt, Lord, that we would be used of you however you would desire. We ask, Lord, you would use us, that we would be effective for your kingdom purposes. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.